The Forum of Workplace Inclusion's 2022 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. And thank you all to our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the forum grows. So thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the special forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast, Beyond the Blame Game, Religion and LGBTQ Inclusion at Work, continued with Nina Bo of Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding and Jean-Marie Nevetta of PFAG. This is a continuation of our July webinar, Beyond the Blame Game, Religion and LGBTQ Inclusion at Work. If you haven't watched that yet, I would highly recommend that you do. There were so many great questions at the end of the webinar that we weren't able to get to, so Nina and Jean-Marie were gracious enough to come back and answer a few. Jean-Marie, Nina, thank you both so much for coming back. Um, It was such a great webinar. It had our highest um, attendance of the year, so congrats on that. And there were such great numbers. Of course, there were so many questions and comments and things that we weren't able to get to. So thank you both so much for coming back and continuing this great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, it's always a pleasure. Before we jump into the questions, would you two just mind just doing a brief introduction of yourselves just so we know who's talking and then just going over like a brief recap of what was covered in the webinar for anyone who may not have attended the webinar for some reason. If you haven't, you should do that. Or anyone who just needs a a refresher. Sure thing. I can start. Um, My name is Nina Bo. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm a senior workplace program associate at the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding. I'll kick it over to my partner in crime, Jean Marie. Thanks, Nina. I'm Jean Marie Nevetta. My pronouns are she or ella if you use Spanish. And I'm the director of learning and inclusion at PFLAG National. And if you're interested in PFLAG, we're at pflag.org. And Nina, do you want to tell a little bit about what brought us together on the session? Absolutely. So. Um, We know that in the past, we have collaborated between our two organizations for an offering called Beyond the Blame Game, which is kind of an elementary start of looking at this intersection of religion and sexual orientation and gender identity, particularly looking at the workplace. And we looked at doing a reprise of this with a slightly more global scope and realized that there's been a lot that's been happening in 2022 and leading up to this. And we felt that it was time to kind of elevate this into a 2.0 and that's what we ended up doing kind of looking at how do we navigate these challenges and opportunities that arise at this intersection continuing with that workplace focus obviously but what does it mean to also look at this through the lens of uh, employee resource groups such as faith-based employee resource groups around religion uh, 
belief and spirituality, as well as LGBTQ plus and pride resource groups? And how can we kind of leverage those spaces to help us kind of assess the landscape, what's been going on at this intersection, looking at what can work, what are some frameworks and strategies to guide this interaction and collaboration, and what are some examples of challenges that we can navigate and resources to help us do just that? And I realize this is not a slide, so I'm like not handing it off to anyone. But that's that's an overview of what we did. Oh, yeah, and thank you for that great recap. And um, yeah, it was a, a, journey because we were joking earlier about how <laughs> the content changed um, from the original to the 2.0 which we're we're so glad it did because you know it's there is a lot of there's a lot to cover and yeah that's that's a very important topics um Jean Marie did you want to add anything before we jumped into no. the questions no I actually think you just hit on probably the most important thing that this is a conversation that in some ways is in more flux than it has ever been before I mean this is not yeah a new conversation. We've done things on this before, but I feel like this particular version of it and the conversations that came out of it during the session and the questions that came up during the session were a real indicator of this is not the same game that we were playing even a year or two Mm -hmm. years ago. There are very emerging issues. The language on this is changing. And I think it really speaks for diversity and inclusion practitioners to really be paying attention to the ways in which it is switching and not assume that always the old strategy works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, things are changing in the blink of an eye these days, (laughs) Um, forward and backwards, it seems. So is your time's linear. But let's just jump right in here. Um, the first question, kind of a longer one, but some of the data you presented indicated that many Christians in America feel that they are being persecuted and discriminated against for their beliefs. Have you heard that from um, that Christians are saying they are discriminated against because of LGBTQ plus um, ERG activities? And where do you think that idea comes from? starting with the easy questions right out the gate. <laughs> just, just jump it right in there. I will make it clear, you chose these ones. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, which is great. We choose chaos, uh, but we choose reality. No, um, yes. I'll, I'll start with some thoughts, um, and then Jean Marie, I'd love to invite the same from you. I think, um, you know, and with that, you know, have we heard this? I would say not extensively in my line of work, per se, but I'm mindful that, you know, we do um, on our workplace team, you know, we have a portfolio of 60, almost 70 different companies representing a variety of sectors and geographies, um, and also to have collaborated with clients in the past that are not part of that program. And I think we've certainly heard feedback and, you know, in the headlines as well, you know, we see that there are these comments at different times and that, you know, employees sometimes have felt that just the mere presence of LGBTQ plus or pride ERG activities being so visible and promoted that, you know, to some individuals that that can feel threatening or that can feel pressuring to their identities. Um, To pivot, I think, to the flip side of that coin and the question is where does that idea come from? I think there's a bit of both general context as well as the disclaimer of it depends because there will no doubt be different lived experiences and context for people that of course impact why they hold certain perspectives. To the general point, I think it's worth noting there are certain trends and conversations with historical and social context in the United States. There are polls and surveys conducted across years that indicate there are indeed some Christians that feel, for a variety of reasons, that Christians are being suppressed or persecuted or treated poorly. Sometimes these comments connect to the presence of diverse communities or LGBTQ plus protections and presences as part of that conversation. 
And other times people know shifting demographics, that there are fewer people who identify Christian today than 10, 20, 30 years ago. It is worth noting, though, like we did at one point, that part of that decrease in people in the U.S. who identify as Christian um, has direct linkage to the experiences and perceptions of how some Christian communities treat LGBTQ plus people. And so many have cited that as part of rationale for leaving the church and not identifying anymore as Christian. So I think it's helpful for us to be mindful that there is no uniform monolith perspective within Christianity or any religion or particular denomination, and that there's a huge amount of diversity, and that includes kind of the why and the how behind that. And I know that's a great way to say it depends. I'm going to kick it over to Jean Marie for another perspective. No, I mean, I, I think what you were saying is absolutely accurate. It does depend. I mean, we can look at a piece of data and see that a significant portion of people in a certain study said, I do feel marginalized on this issue, but it really is a very individual conversation. And the way it shows up is going to look different depending on where we're doing this work, um, because this is perceived differently in many places. I can say, you know, working at, at an organization um, that represents both LGBTQ people as well as their allies and spending 98% of my life in other people's workplaces we definitely have seen an uptick in the past couple of years, particularly the past year, um, in people who might be logging on to classes that are sponsored by the LGBTQ um, network group and expressing some real hostility towards it very openly. Um, and often what we are seeing is that the roots of that are often tied to people talking about their religious identity and talking about how they feel marginalized because of the very existence of, let's say, a Pride Month program, for example. So I, I think we're definitely seeing a bit of an uptick there. And I think a lot of it is what have you been exposed to? I mean, to Nina's point, there is a lot of noise out there. And sometimes we have not always been particularly kind in our conversations. I know that a, um, a phrase that we often hear used in LGBTQ spaces is the idea of spiritual violence that has been done um, to people in this community. And that is very real and it cannot be minimized. Um, I, I think if you are a person of faith, to hear that another person literally feels alienated from God um, is a pretty profound moment. And I think there are enough people in the LGBTQ community who do have that experience. And in turn, sometimes the way that they approach these conversations is frankly out of anger um, and out of a place of hurt. And what gets said um, can make people on the other side of the discussion feel marginalized and as though they are being attacked. At the same time, if we look at some of the language being used by very self-appointed religious leaders, particularly those with really political bent, we see some pretty horrible language. I mean, I regularly see um, the word lifestyle applied to LGBTQ people. I was just reading something this morning where every mention of the word marriage in referring to marriage equality was actually in quotations. And that is equally harmful. So I think there's a lot going on on both sides, but I think if we look at that number about marginalization, it is also, it's individual experiences, but it is also what they are sometimes being fed by the more politically minded religious representatives out there who are in fact telling them you are a victim of this situation. Yes, I mean, yeah, there are definitely people who are out there pushing that narrative. Like you're the victim, you have to push back and you have to like take back control, which is getting people you know, riled up. And I think it, you know, it happens with any kind of progress. People you know, are gonna fear 
um, the change and, and such a such a difficult question to answer. Um, but and a great I think a great one to start with. Um, but next question: What data can we bring to gatekeepers that this conversation about religion and LGBTQ plus identities in the workplace is needed? I I can just quickly start with this. Just look at demographics. Look at the number of people who identify as a person of faith in one shape or another. And while we know that number in some areas definitely is declining, it still represents a huge piece of your workforce. And we can't say to people, you know, some identities can come to work and some you need to check at the door and that this is one of the ones that you need to check at the door. Similarly, um, we know that more people than ever before are out about their LGBTQ identities. As we look at youngest generation entering the workforce, we are seeing the most queer generation in history um, who really are self-identifying in that way. So simply the presence of people with these identities and reminding everyone Often those identities overlap. It's not like you cannot be queer and a person of faith um, or an ally and a person of faith. So we have all of these people there. So if we just want to look at the employees um, who we are trying to support and for whom we are trying to create in inclusive spaces where they really can feel like their, their identities are validated, you can't ignore the basic demographics. I mean, that's absolutely where I start. But Nina, I know that you look at sometimes some of the ways this is showing up and, and that often makes the case for it. So I'm turning it over to you. Thanks so much. And I know for anyone tuning in who, who knows how much of a geek I am, I do love data. But I think for a question like this, data is not the be all end all, despite what Jean Marie said and despite some of my comments in the previous question. Um, it was like we highlighted in uh, in the webinars that contact theory and relationships also have significant impact, that people have significant impact. That said, I think it's super helpful to have data from multiple angles to illustrate just that intersectionality, that it's real, it happens. There is more to the story than conflict. Trends have changed over time and acceptance has changed over time. Like Jim Murray said, that LGBTQ plus people of faith exist, allies exist, and that there's more to the story. And I think if people aim to simplify or create an us versus them construct, that it's always helpful to have data and backup to underscore and support your points. But I think at the end of the day, it's simply one of multiple tools that we need to be mindful of and that things like relationships, connections, those have significant impact. And I think the flip side, likewise, legal protections, knock on wood while we still have them, and workplace policies, what expectations are in place, what parameters are in place, that data is important, but if we're engaging with people who are acting as gatekeepers of this conversation, that I think we definitely need a multifaceted approach. Yeah, and that's, I mean, yeah, it's always the best approach because life is not just data or, you know, it's it's all intersectional, the, that popular word these days. Uh, uh, one of the things you talked about was being aware of the kinds of programming that ERGs do to not inadvertently, for example, invite a speaker considered inflammatory to certain groups. Could a fairly simple checklist be used to vet potential speakers and other similar situations across multiple considerations? I mean, do you have any examples of like something like that happening? You know, I, I don't necessarily think there's a, a, a checklist that's going to unearth all of these things. I think there are certain things. I know Tanabama has some really good guidance on when you are planning events, considerations to keep in mind. Um, and, and Nina can talk about that. But, you know, I find that when somebody suggests a speaker to me about anything, the first thing I do is I do a search of them online um, and I put it with some key terms and I see what pops up. 
And I don't necessarily believe the first result that I get. I read multiple results. So I'll keyword, I'll keyword for example, a person's name and LGBTQ um, or LGBT or some, some variation on that or another keyword that I know is going to make me aware, is there something in this space that I should be um, at least considering, at least aware of? Um, and I, But I also think the larger thing, moving away from a checklist in my mind, is it speaks to the need for ERGs to collaborate and to be talking in the beginning of every year when we're doing our planning about here's what's on my list, here's what seems to be things we care about, here are some of the speakers that we've been considering, the topics we're looking at. Because I think while it, yes, can help you avoid um, inadvertently inviting somebody who has said that half of your uh, population is hellbound, um, I think it also could potentially give us opportunities to say, oh, did you know about this person or have you ever considered this person um, and really open up that conversation and find those those areas in which we have shared interests. Um, but it's only when we have really intentional um, conversations across our ERGs as part of planning. And really, I think DEI leaders can lead that discussion, but it needs to be an intentional thing because we all go off and do our work. And then we come back and send you the invitation and it needs to be more than that. But Nina, I know that Ted and Bum has a lot of really good stuff on, on looking at that. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, and with that said, I mean, my initial reaction when I saw this question is I'm always hesitant to say that there's a fairly simple solution to practically anything. Um, but that said, some of the points that we shared, uh, I think, you know, both in the webinar and what Jane Marie touched on now are certainly helpful to keep in mind is that being collaborative taking your time, doing your research and digging deep. I think, you know, other things we've seen is like explore those testimonials or references of people who've engaged these speakers in the past. Um, I would say the DEI world is very small and interconnected. You know, I've certainly, even in my tenure at Tannenbaum, worked with people, the same people at multiple companies. And for people who've been doing this work for a long time, like everyone knows everyone. It's kind of a strange family reunion of sorts across different sectors and industries. And so I think just kind of reaching out and, talking with other employee resource groups, talking with other contacts and companies in your peer group and saying, you know, who's explored what? Um, you know, I think also we know that circumstances and situations can crop up uh, out of nowhere in the next news cycle and that at times we need to pivot and react and respond. But I think regardless, and perhaps especially in those moments, it's helpful to make sure that we take a little bit of extra time to ensure that those preliminary bases are covered. So I think those general better practices and considerations to be mindful of developing and cultivating that relationship and collaboration between groups, that foundation from the get-go. We often encourage uh, companies that are standing up faith-based research groups is to start that conversation with the pride group from the beginning so that, you know, they know that this is not an ERG that is being stood up in opposition or juxtaposition with anyone. There are going to be people who are, have intersectional membership that are part of both you know all these things and you know we've seen that when we kind of cultivate those connections those friendships if you will and that collaboration that people are sometimes it's very easy to get that crowdsourcing and conversation going and i mean as you were talking jane marie the last thing i thought is being mindful of the sources and just kind of hear my late mother's journalist voice saying always check your sources like not just what's out there but like who's saying it like What's, you know, their perspective and being mindful of that. So just research, research, ask everyone, collaborate with everyone. Um, your late mother was absolutely right. And I think there's one more thing to add to this. I think right now, and I was 
just watching the news the other night and listening to somebody railing on and ranting about being censored, that their perspective was being censored. And I think when we find ourselves in these situations, when we've done, let's say, all the research and we think that we've got it right and still something emerges because anything can happen at any moment. We now know that. Um, I think DEI leaders also need to be really clear if we say no to a speaker or no to a certain direction on why that is being said. That it's not just that it may be offensive to some people. It's because it does not align with the mission of what your ERG is supposed to do. So I think it forces us to go back even one more step and really lean into what is the purpose of the ERGs? What is the purpose of the programming that is coming? And is what is being presented by these groups aligned with that because I think if if it does if a speaker or a program or whatever it is doesn't align with that then that is the reason that we're giving and it takes us away from this is viewpoint discrimination because it really could be something else completely definitely and it, yeah and so can't stress enough um the, the importance of doing your due diligence beforehand because you know if something does come up along the line which it like you said in the nowadays something's always coming up you can always say you know we yeah the yeah we dot crossed our dotted our t i's and crossed our t's t's I, I was just about to say dotted our i's and crossed our t's um it's just that kind of that's want now then that's where we are in the world <laughs> any metaphor in a storm exactly just be prepared <laughs> just be prepared um uh, move, uh moving right along so um next question when someone is curious and wants to learn more about any particular dimension of difference what are the what are your best practices for setting up safe spaces for people to ask the questions that they may not ask in ERG settings? Especially, essentially, where can employees practice safely at work? Great question. I think you know I, I was mindful of uh, one point: questions that they may not ask in ERG settings. And I'm mindful that say if you're having you know an ERG, perhaps you have like regular meetings or if it's, you know, a, a training or a webinar option like, you know, like we conducted that not everyone may feel comfortable having questions. And I think one of the key things to stress is that there's never any stupid question. There's never any dumb question is that everyone will start somewhere. We're all at different points on our learning journeys on every topic. And so I think ways that we though can kind of cultivate spaces where people feel comfortable asking them. I think there's, there's a lot actually. Um, when I think of Tannenbaum resources, I kind of come back to our competencies for respectful communication is that, you know, things that I think of is like, you know, being, you know, asking respectfully, engaging with genuine curiosity, listen actively, listen to hear and to, and to learn, not to respond. Is that I think those, you know, I think, Jane Marie, of a conversation we had when we talked about pivoting this entirely and you said, well, we're still doing like Respect 1.0, but we're now we're doing Respect 2.0 because, it's it's still it's still a thing and and i think that goes to show is that you know we're still talking about this and everyone's engaging in different points on the spectrum and on the journey and so i think at every single point there are these kind of elements such as respectful communication where we it's helpful for us to keep that close to us at every point on that journey that you know it's also not a one off thing i think this is part of building relationships is a great way to to create those spaces you know you're not going to have a deep devout conversation with someone that you barely have a have a connection or affiliation with but i think doing the work and building those relationships by showing up and supporting each other even whether that's you know 
within an ERG, across ERGs, like interpersonally, you know, if you build a relationship, that contact theory, you know, if you have connections with someone, if you build that, you know, relationship with someone, you're going to have a, I think, a more fertile opportunity for my turn to mess up metaphors, um, you know, fertile ground to have a conversation. Um, and I think ideally we can get to the point that ERG settings do feel like comfortable places, but I think mindful of people's processing styles and communications, like this might be a conversation you'd feel more comfortable having one-on-one with someone versus like everyone else listening in. Um, and I think lastly, um, uh, I'm going to mention it, I think in, in one of the next questions too, but another resource we have is like guidelines on conducting open conversations. So I think just like, you know, engaging with genuine respect, curiosity, um, and I think likewise, too, another thing that I've been trying to be particularly mindful of, because I am unafraid of a lot of confrontation, shocking, um, but is that for an individual person's, you know, mental and emotional safety and well-being, too, it's like you may start a conversation, you may consent to do that. But if at any point it gets uncomfortable, I think, you know, everyone has the agency uh, to say, you know what, can we table this right now and come back to this at a point when I feel a little bit more prepared to have this conversation? I agree with absolutely everything that you were saying. And I think some of those resources that you mentioned are really, really good. The respectful communications one is such a good piece. And, and you know, it's a lot of things that you look at and you think, oh, of course I should be doing this, but we actually can't say it enough. We cannot actually repeat these things enough. And I think um, you know, one of the things that we talk about at PFLAG a lot, because outside of sort of the workplace engagement that we have, we have, you know, all of these chapters, around 400 chapters around the country that are all doing these support groups and these programming opportunities. Um, we always talk to them about the importance of ground rules, but not just grabbing some random ground rules from the Internet and saying this is what we're going to use, but making them a living document that people have contributed to that we are literally using all the time when it comes to these hard conversations. That in those ground rules, we are saying, you know, things like let's assume that people are coming from a place of real curiosity and really wanting to understand and that it is not intended to be a flammable. Let's let's intend that good, the you know, the, the good intent. Um, also, explaining to people that I am here, to, I'm seeking to learn. I'm seeking to understand. I want to do better. That is why I'm asking the question. It is not to put you on the spot. And also being accepting, you know, when we have these conversations, setting a norm that, Sometimes you may hear things that are really tough and you may not like what is being said to you when you ask that question or when you get into that discussion, but reminding ourselves that it is not an attack on us as individuals. Often what comes out in these conversations is that whole lifetime of experiences that someone is having and now sharing that perspective. And it's it's hard, um, I see this as an introvert, to not take everything personally and really take it to heart, but, some, but keep reminding yourself the person who's speaking to me, if they've had a rough experience, a bad experience, a traumatizing experience, what they are sharing with me is, and I will use the word here, sacred. And while it might rattle me to hear it, it is a perspective that I need to hear to be more aware of the people around me. It is only when we are uncomfortable that we become aware of these higher level things that aren't immediately apparent to us. And I think it takes some courage to do that. I mean, I'm I'm frankly really tired of hearing let's have courageous conversations. But sometimes, it, I mean, like, I think it's, again, become like so many things sort of almost empty. But then you need to have courage to go into these spaces. But we also need to keep reminding each other. And that's why things like those ground rules and repeating them and agreeing on them are so important that 
we're all here for the same thing. We are here to support each other. It's sometimes things get a little rattled along the way, but on the other side of it, it's so much better if we can. Yeah, definitely. And it, um, it, those ground rules sound really helpful. If you care to share them, that'd be awesome. If, if you have them written, if you have them written down, um, you want to share them with our listeners. 1995, you can get Jean Marie's ground rules. <laughs> well, there we go. Only 1995. That's a steal. That is a steal. Um, we actually can, but you know, I think one of the neat things that we discovered is that we saw many of our chapters sort of starting with, you know, somebody Googles ground rules for yeah. meetings and they start with this. And so this is what I found. And then that leads to this really interesting conversation about what's missing or what do yeah. we need or what things do we find ourselves, you know, running up against and they become like kind of these living documents. So they're not static. You're not using the same one that you had two years ago or even maybe six months ago because we're all facing different stuff. So um, I'd be happy to share some stuff and we can push those out. But remembering that it should be treated as a group activity and not somebody says, this is how we're gonna roll. Yeah, it's a um, collaboration. Yeah. Um, reminds me, I think I might've told you the story the last time I spoke or told a lot, but I, I used to be a chapter leader of an organization called Gay for Good. Um, it's a national organization, but just, um, uh, but on the Twin Cities chapter, and the name's under a name change um, <laughs> to be more inclusive. But the whole concept is the, uh, of ch is about changing hearts and minds um, through good. So we, as an organization, would go out and do different projects in the community, preferably outside of the LGBTQ plus community, so that people could just a lot. Of, you know, the best way to change people's minds is to, like encounter someone. Like once someone like knows an openly gay person or a lesbian or a, you know, trans and like, it's a lot harder to hate them, especially if they're like doing things like raking your yard or cleaning your food or, you know, serving you food or, you know, so one of the first places we, um, one of my first projects that I coordinated as a chapter leader was going to this um, food shelter, I, I won't say food bank, um, called House of Charity, where, you know, it's like, they, it, well, I don't want to say soup kitchen because that feels so like 1930s depression era, but that's, you know, we, it was serving, you know, serving food and we came up with, with this, there was a group of like 25 of us and, um, you know, we not only, we worked with the, the House of Charity and their staff and the people who they serve are predominantly uh, people of color and a lot of them had never interacted with an openly, you know, LGBTQ plus person. So they were surprised when we showed up with like a group of 25 people to, there to like, you know, full force at like 9 a.m. to, you know, cook and clean. And we like, you know, we had so many that we prepped food, we, you know, cooked the food, we served the food, but also went into like their pantry and completely cleaned it and organized it. And they were so blown away and so grateful. And then, and it also led to them being feeling comfortable enough to actually ask us questions. Like I said, a lot of them had never spoken to, yeah. you know, an openly um, LGBTQ plus person. And, you know, and they asked open and honest questions. And some of them were uncomfortable. Um, but a lot of the, but, but we also understood that they were coming from a place of, like, they were coming from a place like, we just want to learn. We just want to mm -hmm. understand this is an opportunity yeah. they've never had. Um, they, and, you know, uh, and they ask questions like how we've had, how we've been received by other groups that we've worked with, which is a natural, um, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, and just, but like questions about our experience and, you know, 
all these things. And you know, it's a, it was such a great experience and great, mm-hmm. like long lasting partnership. We're one of the first people they reach out to when they need volunteers, and we and they're mm-hmm. one of and they're one of what like the regular places we uh, volunteer with. But yeah, it was just great because I I mean there there was a little bit of hostility, like not hostility, but just you know a little uncertainty. Tension. Yeah, yes, uncertainty. Like uncertainty mm-hmm. was our first time working with this group, and mm-hmm. th- th- it was you know, and you know, with gay being right in our name, um, yeah. with, you know, there was a little bit of tension with them being like what their expectations mm-hmm. of of this gay group coming in. Were we going to come in like beyond our ban- on our soapbox and try to like you know, you know Jean Marie, it's all about the glitter. We know this. I was just gonna say, did you leave like a sheen of glitter uh, on <laughs> everything? Like just that a twirl before we left. It's like, yeah, we spent all this time cleaning. Now we're just going to dump a bunch of glitter and leave. And you'll find it for months to come. But I think, you know, I think when you work with an, especially for an LGBT organization, I I always laugh about when people are like, can I ask you something? And I just think there should be, the cameras should start rolling because what happens next (laughs) can be anything. And you sort of develop this, all right, I'm going to buckle up because this could be rough or this could be the best conversation that you have ever had. And I find that sometimes... Literally, the best conversations I've ever had started with, can I ask you something? And me feeling a little rattled in the beginning. And then by the end, you realize people are asking these questions that it probably took a lot to get out of their yes. mouths. And you kind mm-hmm. of appreciate that because that's yeah. not easy. Yeah. yeah. And to like not have an agenda when you start like, you know, yeah. something like to drill into someone. It's just like, no, mm-hmm. we just, I'm just here for you to talk. Like, we're just here to talk. And if you... You know, well, you know, if, and you can if, if you come from a place from respect, like I'm happy to answer your questions. One of my favorite questions from like Gay for Good Experience, not related to the House of Charity, but just funny. We were at a a um, a, a pride, like one of those, like a suburb that was just doing their first pride, and it was like smaller. And we had a we had a booth, and this very lovely, well-meaning lady came up and asked, "She's like Gay for Good, so does that mean like?" you guys are like committing to being gay. And at first I was just like, well, I was like, no. I it love took me that a sec- interpretation. <laughs> it took me a second. I was like, wait, yes, but no. <laughs> I signed the contract. I totally signed the contract. I'm good for like another 10. Exactly. It's just like, so you're committing, to, does that mean you're committing to being gay? And I was just so confused. And I thought about it, I was like, oh, gay for good. No, it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we're, we're gays doing good. Um, I guess so. We, I was like, that's, yeah, it was just one of the funniest things, and she was so sweet. Uh, and we we had a good laugh about it, and I, we still have um, we still laugh, still laugh about that as an organization. So it's like, so are you guys committing to being gay? It's like, yes, <laughs> um, but also no. Anyways, <laughs> good times. Well, I think though, I think though, the you know, especially like your your first comment anecdote, I think that really does illustrate something that we've actually highlighted. I think in previous iterations of Beyond the Blame Game is the idea of like, okay, what can collaboration look like and I think having those things that you know that do tend to unite people the values that we tend to share like you know they're coming from an organization that looks at religious diversity you know we note that there are multiple different religious and spiritual traditions that strongly value things like community service and giving Mm -hmm. back and I think that's just kind of a, a human experience that if I can make that assumption that you know there are people that regardless of how they affiliate or identify on insert whichever facet of identity of your choosing is that I think there's things that people will care about, like giving back to your community. And so those can be very 
non-threatening ways that, you know, your organization might already be doing and having initiatives like a volunteer day or something like that and say, hey, let's, you know, make sure we get a good turnout between both of our ERGs and like spend some time together. And, you know, that contact theory, again, getting back to what we talked about is like, this is how you help build relationships. Yes. And relation and building relationships are the ultimate, like the best way to get to get the change that we all want, um, the acceptance um, that we all want and the community that we all want. Um, so just a plug for Gay for Good. They have them in 23 cities. There's one in New York and um, yeah, they're all over. So look them up if you're looking for a volunteer opportunity. I'm no longer on the board, but it's still a great organization. Um, so we are getting close to the end here. Well, so, um, so the next question is, should we avoid talking about misinterpretation of Bible quotes, for example, to avoid confrontation? Which was an interesting one. This was a curveball. <laughs> Nina, are we going to disagree on this one? I think it'll be fascinating. Maybe we can I be think... like the ultimate throwdown, the nonprofit throwdown. Right. Just, uh, why don't you to... talk because i i know that i definitely have a pretty strong feeling on it but i'm interested to know where you are absolutely no and and this is where i might do the the beg forgiveness ask permission with you know how much is uh how much is tannenbaum and how much might be nina Bo. so please forgive me for being human um but when i read this how example, dare you be human what how dare i <laughs> over Done. <I'm> sorry <laughs> off of their head um no, but when I when I saw this, I think there's actually like two different questions here, I think, because we're assuming that simply talking about Bible quotes and their interpretation and misinterpretation translates to confrontation. And uh, this is where I'm going to sound like devil's advocate or insert religiously appropriate, uh, you know, advocate of some kind. But I think, you know, it begs the question, the nuance, getting back to that diversity, who defines what's misinterpreted? I personally come from particular Christian denominations that are very inclusive to LGBTQ plus communities, even to the point of clergy member and bishops. And I'm fully aware of the fact that there are Christian communities who consider me and anyone affiliated with my denomination 100% in the wrong. Um, I think that said, in a workplace context, having an organized institutional or programmatic discussion about interpretation of scripture is leaning into behavior that isn't quite appropriate or constructive in a workplace setting. So I'd say, again, let's focus on behavior and not belief. It's not any workplace's business or Tannenbaum's business to analyze scripture and tell people what they should or shouldn't believe or define interpretation. But I think being mindful of, say, if you have faith-specific ERGs, like a Christian ERG or perhaps an informal Bible study, they might actually have this conversation organically by themselves. They might even debate about it. And I think that reflects the reality of this conversation outside of our workplaces also. People might have conversations and explore the nuance, and I don't think that means that it will necessarily be confrontational in and of itself. Um, and I think to that point, that confrontation is another matter entirely. I think we talked about it a little bit, that being better equipped to navigate and handle confrontation is always going to be good because it will inevitably happen. Conflict is part of life. Workplaces are not immune to having difficult conversations, rebranding it from courageous, because as much as I love alliteration, we got to change it up a bit. Um, but I think empowering and educating ourselves to be better able to navigate those conversations will only be better, uh, better for us and help us more. I was so hoping that we were going to disagree on something like really intensely, Nina, um, but it never happens. I, I feel like I, you know, everything Nina said, and, and this is where I am, you know, again, 
primarily functioning in sort of LGBTQ and ally spaces, I find that those conversations typically are not very productive um, because I, I just think about how I go into it. You know, you would think about some, what they call those clobber verses, the ones that are often used to really marginalize or attack LGBTQ people. And I think um, I've spent a lot of you know, background in religion. I am a person of faith. You can talk for 24 hours straight. I am never going to agree with your interpretation of Leviticus. It's You're not changing my opinion on this one. It is literally a non-starter. And I'm willing to bet that I could talk for 24 hours straight and the person who disagrees with me on Leviticus is not going to change their mind either. And, and I think while it doesn't necessarily mean conflict, as Nina was saying, it just feels like a stalemate. And I hate being in stalemates. And I think in the workplace, that's the worst thing because we are tasked with building inclusion. And so I find that when somebody pulls me into that, um, you know, once we've kind of established that we may not see things the same way, I find myself saying something like, listen, we could talk about this all day. I'm probably not going to change your mind on it. I, you're not going to change my mind on it. But let's talk about the things that we actually do have as shared values. Um, me looking at another person who is from a Christian denomination and saying, we are called on to be kind. We are called on to be inclusive. We are called on to serve others, to do justice. Let's let's figure out where those places are that we can exist uh, and, and we can both see, see eye to eye. And I mean, and when I'm talking to people with religious beliefs that are similar to mine, I mean, I will point out there's literally no example of Jesus excluding people. Uh, you know, let's focus on the inclusion conversation. He obviously couldn't have agreed with everybody that he met, but still found ways to demonstrate in behavior which is what Nina was just saying, inclusion and kindness and finding ways to connect and building community. And I think that pivot is really important, especially at work where I don't think that is, you know, the debate over how we see scripture, for example, is really what we should be focusing on. Although to Nina's point, I think sometimes it's unavoidable, but find the common ground places because there are places that just you're going to continue staring each other down and we don't have time for that. Yeah, I was I was interested and intrigued by that question because, uh, yeah, I was like I don't know of any workplaces where there's discussion of scripture, uh, but then I remembered the content. So there are people who work in religious workplaces on this on this webinar who that would actually it would yeah. actually be something that comes up in the workplace, which is enlightening for me. Um, and yeah, so yeah, and I will say actually you prompt me to to remember I up in Seattle and there are a couple different like universities that are affiliated with faith traditions and you know mindful that there are some workplaces that you know do have I would say perhaps because of these like being private being you know faith related is that there are certainly going to be nuances that will yes. be a little different in those settings and I think but you know there are still going to be some parameters that are helpful to keep in mind in those kinds of settings that regardless of if it is a private um, you know, faith affiliated workplaces that there still will be clear delineations rather mm -hmm. about kind of what is permissible, what isn't permissible. And I feel in those situations, it having that clarity about kind of what is the stance, for lack of a better term, of the organization um, from the, the way that they interpret and practice that uh, affiliation through the institution at which, you know, you might work in this case. It at least gives you, I think, a clearer view of what you can expect and anticipate. And at the end of the day, decide, you know, is this something that I will continue engaging in and working in? Or, you know, at what point do you draw the line, if that's the case? So. 
Well, and I mean, Nina, to your point, there are religiously affiliated, you know, organizations where people can work. And and to be clear, in my opinion, there are many that do weaponize religion to discriminate against either who works there or who they serve. And it is actively and fairly proudly used in some cases. And that Mm -hmm. is the reality of the situation. But for me, those are not the organizations that are probably participating in this conversation in the first place. So let's focus on the ones who are really trying to do something different and let's work with them. Cause you know, the people sort of on the far ends of either spectrum probably have dug in really deep. And so I want to focus on what change can I affect and really go there. Great point. I had a friend who, um, recently left a very religious organization that she was working for um, because they had, you know, they had her, everyone has to sign this contract that this is what, as an employee here, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this is wrong. This is, you know, you know, yeah. And she, and she was just like, I didn't believe it. And, and like, and she's like, and I knew a lot of other people who didn't believe it. over half of the things on that contract, but they still signed it because they, wanted to keep their jobs. And she was just like, at a certain point, and hers actually was, her breaking point was their view on LGBTQ plus issues, where she was just like, I just can't, I, I absolutely cannot. She's like, I'm a divorced woman who had three children out of wedlock, but you're fine with that. But you are like, this is like this whole, like LGBTQ plus that's, yeah, that's so that, so she just, yeah, she couldn't, but yeah, they actually have, you know, you sign this contract and it is a great way to discriminate against people be like yeah if you don't believe this then you can't work here or if you believe that gay marriage should be legal then you can't work here it's uh, so crazy but and it kind of ties in really well with the next question um, which is also a rather hot topic Um, tolerance for all but not but tolerance for all but the intolerant what do you think of this phrase and how how do we tolerate people who have negative views or who are intolerant or do we? Silence. <laughs> Nina and I are both looking at each other, wondering who goes first. All these questions again, going back to the ground rules, and I was like, first ten easy installations of nineteen ninety nine. We have your solution. <laughs> no, no. I mean, and this is where I think you know the short and simple answer is, ironically, this is an oversimplification. Is that mm-hmm. it's not black and white. I think. Uh, tying back to, you know, something I mentioned uh, briefly earlier, that I think, one, sometimes people need to make a decision for their own safety, mental and emotional health and well-being, deciding whom we will interact with as little or as much as possible. And I think those situations make complete sense. But to tease out the nuance a little bit, I think we need to be mindful is that, again, who's saying what's negative? You and I may define negative views about LGBTQ plus people as unacceptable, but to someone else in their own religious views, personal views, lived experience, culture, what have you, may find that completely understandable, logical, and acceptable. Um, and we may not have the arena to what Jean Marie was just saying to necessarily change someone's mind, and they may feel the exact same way about us. I think tying it back to, again, the workplace is what, are, what do we consider in the workplace is the behavior that we see. We have parameters in place for what's acceptable behavior policies, expectations, what's been signed and said, I will adhere to this and follow. And so as I think, you know, we mentioned in the the webinar as well, is that if those views translate into discriminatory and prejudiced behavior, that is something we can discuss, monitor, regulate, and enforce. And that this is an arena also where we can model acceptable behavior, instituting things like learning opportunities to better engage with clients, colleagues, and partners in respectful ways. And I would say that increased awareness and skill set um, ties into DEI values, company values, and the business case. This is good for the bottom line. 
That said, there's not, this isn't to say there's not pushback. We've certainly seen efforts, even legislation in some states, allowing for things like pushback against in- inclusivity or sensitivity trainings, as it might be termed, giving people legal space to say, oh, this goes against my beliefs. So they seek accommodation to not have to participate. And so people will sometimes draw a fine line that they wish to walk, but I think time will tell, is that going to be productive? Um, I think the last thing I'd highlight is that from another perspective, we don't exist in a vacuum. People can change, learn, adapt, and grow, is that the views that people have now may not be the views we hold in the future. Um, Again, contact theory, interactivity. I mean, I mentioned my mom earlier, my dad grew up in a small town in Montana, and we moved to Seattle in the late 80s. So he didn't really have a lot of interactivity with LGBTQ plus communities and individuals to challenge or shape the views he held at the time. But being around more diverse communities in his workspaces and the very community he lived in in his personal life, over time, he drastically changed his ways of thinking. And I think that holds true for all of us. I completely agree. I mean, I think it is it is kind of keeping that belief versus behavior very front of mind in the conversation. I think that is where, when we are talking about the workplace, I think outside of the workplace, this plays out a little bit differently, but we are at work and we are doing DEI work to really specific ends. But I think we also need to recognize, to Nina's point, that change does happen. Um, as she was telling the story, I was thinking about um, uh, several years ago, I was called um, to a to a refinery um, in the very deep south, um, very deep south, um, to do some work on LGBTQ issues. Um, and I had a room of over a hundred people. I think I may have been one of three women in the room, um, and I was the one teaching the class. Um, and you know, as we're going through this class on LGBTQ stuff, I'm looking out and I'm thinking the average demographic here probably probably what they are thinking, how they are voting, how they perceive this issue. And this man raised his hand and he said, I need to say something. And he stood up and he said, you know, I can't say I understand all of this. I can't say I even agree with everything that's being said. And then he said, but I've never said this in front of anyone else here. My son is gay. And you could have heard a pin drop. I later on found out this man had worked at the company for 30 something years, was considered a leader, was very well respected, was working on the line. And that moment where when he first started speaking, I have to admit, my gut kind of clenched up and I was like, oh boy, what's going to happen now? This is going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. And just me giving that space and trusting that there could be something else. And what I heard after the fact was that so many people then had conversations because his level of what someone might label as intolerance, I don't necessarily agree with everything you're saying, or I don't even get it actually became a lifeline in some way to start a whole new conversation path. And so I think, you know, what Nina was saying that this is, you can't oversimplify this. And sometimes what we see as intolerance might just be part of that journey towards becoming more accepting, towards becoming an ally, towards becoming inclusive. And so I I don't think that it's just sort of writing them off or stopping listening, because I think what that man said that day gave so many people in that room so much to think about, but it would have been just as easy to immediately shut down to everything that came after I don't agree with everything she's saying. Yeah. And it was remarkable. I mean, here I am, it must've been five years ago. I still think about that regularly. Sounds very moving and not what I was expecting. <laughs> I'm gonna say, yeah. you made me tear up, come on. Yeah. Uh, 
on the other end of the spectrum, um, but on the long lines of the, along the same lines. Um, this is our second to last question, our penultimate question. Um, but what could be a good response to the notion expressed as I don't want to endorse that lifestyle? Like if there's you know if a company is like introducing a Pride ERG or something, when someone de you know declines to participate in you know LGBTQ plus ERG activities. I have to admit the first thing that I would do is I would actually have a conversation about the comment um, yeah. because I think right there it is showing me that this person probably doesn't completely understand what we're talking about. The use of that word lifestyle right there is this learning moment. And I think I would be inclined to step back and say, first of all, why? Um, and understand a little bit more about where they are specifically coming from because there's a lot of ways that we could do it. Um, have a conversation about, you know, this actually isn't about endorsing anything. This is a learning opportunity, like learning about the word lifestyle and why that could be really offensive to some people and learning about how we see each other differently. Um, but I also think pointing out that simply learning about something is not an endorsement of something. I have gone to lectures in which I quite literally disagreed with every single word that was said by every single person on the stage. My presence there was not an endorsement. It was an opportunity for me to try to understand them better. And I think there is a perception that if I put myself in the room, I'm affirming. If I put myself in the room, I'm learning. And that is what so much of the work that we as DEI practitioners are doing. And I think this, again, is this opportunity to reframe things to people. And it is when people learn, when they have those oh my goodness moments, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that in 27 states, you can still get legally discriminated against. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize that all these things are happening, that we can actually move the needle. But I think a gut reaction to hearing that comment would be to shut the person down fast and we need to do better than that. I think that's an opportunity. Absolutely, my, my turn to echo everything you said. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it's like being mindful and again, kind of like with, uh, you know, with what I shared previously is that, you know, happen something that happens in that moment does not mean that that's the only thing that person will ever have, the perspective they'll have or what they'll think for the rest of their life. And there's no changing that. I think, you know, and I think the, the other thing is too, coming from like the workplace side of things with being mindful, no one's forced to participate in any ERG activities. So it's the kind of thing of, give people the space no one wants to be coerced no one will be coerced into a different way in a, into an inclusive way of thinking i feel like it's a little counterintuitive um but i think to, to jane marie's point absolutely is that you know being mindful of you know what kind of conversations we can have um and you know it kind of reminds me of some of the scenarios that we've had in some tannenbaum trainings and i think these are opportunities say for you know allyship and you know people who may you know be of the same religious or spiritual background as this person to kind of like leverage that connection and kind of host the conversation. Like you might be able to get a little bit more in edgewise and, and, you know, get a little bit more listening time and understanding from this person that might kind of contribute to something. And I think even if we want to see, make all the change ourselves, we don't always get to see all of the pieces fall into place. And that's just the way that it goes. But I think, being mindful that we can always play uh, a, a part and how can we do that? Yeah, definitely. And I, I wrote down actually, um, Jean Marie, the difference between affirming and learning because I I have to remind, you know, I've never thought about it that like that myself. And um, yeah, and that was such a like, 
break like breakthrough to think about it like that um and a great way of explaining it to people it's interesting you know before i i, I worked in dei my background is in communications and one of the mm. biggest things that i learned was the importance of as we would call it when you're doing media opposition research and so i found myself going quite literally to conferences designed to take apart people like me um, but going and sitting and listening. And it's not that I agreed with anything that was being said, but boy, did I get insight on, I never understood why somebody was saying this. And suddenly I understood where they were coming from. I didn't agree with it, yeah. but I suddenly had this perspective. And I have found that that particular skill, I don't consider it opposition research anymore, but more looking into those who I disagree with has served me really well in the DEI field. Um, in, in forcing me to see people as people with perspectives but undergoing a, a level deeper and not just sort of rolling my eyes and saying, oh, it's because you're uneducated. It's because you're, you know, backwards or whatever. I spend an unhealthy amount of time for my mental health um, reading Fox News articles, but yes. also reading the comments, yes. which is, which is that, uh, that's where you're a bolder, bolder individual than I am. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I realized that I kind of live in a somewhat isolated world. I live in a, you know, my blue bubble here in Minneapolis. So it's like my way of, you know, understanding the other side, learning from the other side. Obviously, the people who are typing in Fox News, like in the chats, comment section of the Fox News articles are the, usually on the more extreme side. But there are yeah. some of like, the moderate ones in there. And it's interesting to watch conversations. And obviously, there are some people who come in there just to try to you know, speak the truth or at least try to put a different perspective out there. And but yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty eye opening. Um and people and so a lot of times like what things that shock my friends, I'm just like, I'm not surprised by that so like that someone would say or believe that because I've seen it written yeah. in comments on articles so many times or I've read the articles yeah. and I've read the I've read like like different versions of the articles and it's like their, their version is le leaving out important facts or there are articles that are just not being put out here at all. So they are unaware. Um, so it's, it's, it is a very, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to do that opposition research or just call it learning. Learning. <laughs> um, so I'm sad to say this is our last question, but I do want to thank you both so much for coming back and for having this great conversation. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you both and learn from you both. Um, and I definitely, like I said, I've just been learning so much myself um, in this conversation. So thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. And so our last question, do you think members of inclusive churches feel a special responsibility to hold members of non-inclusive churches accountable for the impact of that exclusion? Another simple question. Another Very simple question. question. <laughs> Are you talking first, Nina? I I can start. I I feel like we have like a nice little like shared brain cell. Like we're we're both an orange cat. We share the brain one, cell. We are one um, orange cat. One orange cat sharing a brain cell at this point. You do have the same color <laughs> hair right now. I will throw we it out. We do. <laughs> Wait till we're on the same coast, and then the world will tilt off its axis. Um, I think uh, you know when I see this question, you know I, I personally resonate with it. Just again, like as I mentioned in full transparency, like you know I come from denominational backgrounds where there is currently that inclusion and it's definitely a journey to get there of course and and you know effort and I think I think people may feel that responsibility for a lot other terms I think they may feel pressure or guilt what have you um but I think likewise it's helpful to again remember that Christianity is not a monolith 
Um, and likewise, one of the competencies that we encourage people to remember uh, with Tannenbaum's respectful communication, no one is a spokesperson for their entire community, religion, or identity. And so it's a balance, the balance, if you will, of how to navigate that space and pressure. Um, I think actually one of the conversations we had prior to the webinar was that I didn't include in any of my talking points because it didn't really make sense, but it was that idea of like, you know, how do you you know, create space if I, you know, have conversations like, you know, I even have with my boyfriend. He was like, well, what do you mean about what does being religious mean? I was like, well, what does that mean to you? Because I can tell you what it's not. And I feel it's like, how do we navigate spaces of say, I'm religious, but I'm not X, Y, Z. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot of qualifiers that, you know, happen because then people feel like there's pressure to make that happen simply because we know that discrimination, um, you know, utilizing religion uh you know does exist and i i think we have to navigate it sometimes because quite frankly sometimes we have preconceived notions we'll have our nature reactions and people will have their assumptions and i think that's really what we're driving at here is let's try to avoid the assumptions let's try to approach a conversation and say well what does this mean for you and let's have that conversation now where i learn about you and i'm not saying well i have this thought of you know jane marie what you know opinionated redheaded lesbians you know from the west coast do and i'm like i don't even know what that means and it's like why don't we just get to know someone first i just i, I think maybe that should just be how i describe myself um but we could just have just stopped at opinionated redhead probably because i mean like after that anything that follows yeah. you know is going to be very very assertive I, I think everything that nina said but i, I do think that there is a role for pointing out um, denominations or even groups within denominations that have done really good work. Um, I mean, God bless the UCCs, for example. I mean, there's so much in front and, and very assertive, largely in most cases about their inclusion and trying to sort of make up for what I think where other people have felt spiritually excluded, you know, just using them as an example. But I also think when I see some of these communities that seem to be compelled to kind of get out there and in front of it and say, we are not what you think we are. We are not this, this, and this and discriminatory. I like holding up those examples. Um, and I love the fact that right now, if a person who is um, queer identified comes to me and said, I was raised and then fill in the blank of whatever religious group it is, whatever background it is, I know that there is a 99.9% .9 chance that there is probably a group of allies and other LGBTQ people in that denomination that have formed to create space to have this conversation there in the language they use, in the community they have. And I think those are where people choose to put themselves out there, where people feel compelled to sort of show we're not like what you think some of us are. It's really important. But I mean, to Nina's point, recognizing Individuals can only speak for individuals, even in an open affirming community. There are probably people in the pews who don't agree with the fact that it's open and affirming um, and taking everybody individually. But I think when communities do that, it is often seen as a sign of hope um, for many people who have felt alienated from the communities in which maybe they originated. And so I think that's the role for it. But always sort of with the asterisk of not all, <laughs> um, you know, you need to take everyone at their own face value. But the fact that they're there. Um, the fact that somebody feels, you know, a, a Christian church feels compelled to go to pride with a banner reading, we're sorry for how you've been treated. I like to point to that as there's a lot of hope out there for people who felt pretty hopeless on this issue. 
And I think that is the perfect place to end um, with hope. So thank you both so much for coming back and sharing and giving us hope. And yeah, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nina and Jean-Marie, for this coming back and for this wonderful podcast and answering some of these wonderful questions. And thank you to our listeners for joining. If you'd like to learn more about religion and LGBTQ inclusion at work, contact Nina at nbo, that's B-O-E, at tenenbaum.org, and or Jean-Marie at jnavetta at pfide.org. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. Episodes can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,000 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota locations. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. At Augsburg, education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.